The following audio is recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Uh, Would you open with me or scroll with me, however you get there this morning? Would you get to 1 Timothy with me? And listen, we're stepping into the meat this morning of our letter. Um, Paul does not waste time. In fact, last week what we saw basically in a nutshell is uh, Paul saying, Hi, I'm Paul. This is to Timothy. Let's get to work. So that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to follow in with that. We're not going to waste any time. And I want to start kind of right where we ended last week. If you remember last week, we talked about the importance of good posture. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, if you're sitting up straight and your shoulders are back, not talking about that, um, although that's good. What, I, what I'm talking about, though, is this posture like this, this open-handedness, that what we talked about is that not only would we be a people who... who read the word of God, but in this time like this, that we would be a people that would allow the word of God to read us, open-handed, open-handed posture. And so I want to encourage us to come just like that, knowing that our God cares about us as his people, as his church, and he has a plan um, for us. And so what that means is instead of coming thinking uh, close-handed, we know better, that we come to this open-handed Right up front, I want to tell you that in our text today, I think is one of the most important, if not the single most important phrases of the entire letter. It sets the tone for so much of what we're about to see. So having said that, we're going to come to it. Let me read our text, and then we'll pray for our time together in the Word. So our text this morning, we're going to be in two, um, in, uh, two verses here. So 1 Timothy... Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship. That come or that from God that is by faith. All right, let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for this time in your word. And I want to pray as we come open handed, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that you would allow us to to truly come open handed before you. But I, I also just want to pray that you would speak through your word, that you would use this time. And that you would, um, you would open our eyes and ears and that we would come through this <laughs> with our love and affection for you just stirred and growing. So Lord, we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. All right, amen. I want to start off with a quick backstory, okay? Um, a long, 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 long time ago, uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, uh, was going out on mission trips throughout the known world. And uh, all he was doing is, as basic as this, is preaching the gospel. He was telling people about Jesus, and people were coming to faith. And um, what Paul would do is he would bring these groups of people that were coming 
to Christ, coming to faith, and he would put them together, form communities. That's a church. He would plant churches. That's what he was doing in the, in the ancient world. And one day, uh, he came to a city named Ephesus. Ephesus is a very interesting place, cultural hub known for its pagan worship. And so it's kind of funny to me that, you know, you have the Apostle Paul dropping into a notoriously pagan city. This is going to go well, isn't it? Uh, and that's what we see. And we see it, we actually get to see this unfold for us in, in Acts 19. You don't need to go with me there, but what happens is Paul, when he arrives in the city, we're told that there were a few believers. And by a few, 12 we are told there are 12 guys that uh, knew and followed Jesus here in Ephesus. And um, we also know that these 12 dudes were um, a bit confused doctrinally, that they didn't understand fully the work of Jesus, what they believed, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul arrives and he begins to teach them and God does a mighty work in them. And I, you got to just take this in. So he does a work in them and in They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're emboldened, and they they turn the city upside down. They really do. Um, And the gospel spreads like wildfire. Um, The Bible says that in two years, actually, I'll, I'll put this up here. Look at this. In two years, all the residents of Asia, what? Heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, from 12 to all the residents the gospel was, that's, that's awesome. And this is the way the church of Ephesus was planted, and it was literally changing the, the city here. And um, here's the thing. As men and women were coming to faith in Jesus, and as they began to confess their sin and confess their idolatry, um, here's the thing. Here in this pagan city that's known for its idolatry, the people were no longer buying idols. Um, they were taking all their old books, destroying them, all that pagan stuff. They were just destroying them and burning them. They were unplugging from the cultural norms. And um, the gospel, here's the thing, was changing their hearts, yes, but it was also changing their spending habits. And it rocked the city of Ephesus. This is so cool. Um, And so that means that businesses that made their living from profiting off of the sale of these fine idols uh, and books were going out of business. And why were they going out of business? It's because their demand was going away. That's so cool, because the gospel is changing hearts. And that is my prayer for the church today, by the way. That's, that's revival. It, it, it's not that the church was outside going, stop with the idols. They're ter- they're, they weren't picketing in front of the idols. No, it was just that the clientele was, was drying up. That's so cool. And, and um, so this is the church. It ministered in Ephesus, and, and from, from day one, here's what I want you to hear. From day one, this church bucked up against idolatry from out there. From day one. It's a pagan city. And from day one, they pushed against that. Um, and, and they had to battle against these false teachings, and it pushed around. They were a church in the middle of an occult, basically. That's what they were. And, and Christ was doing a work in this church, and the church was planted, and it ministered. Okay, fast forward. Let's fast forward 10 years. The church ministers in Ephesus 10 years doing work, and then all of a sudden, there seems to be signs of trouble that start to develop in this early church. 
And here's the interesting thing. After all that I just told you, after me telling you that this church was surrounded by pagan things and idolatry, after all of that, you would expect that the, that the trouble that they were in was coming from that, all of that, like pushing in on them. You'd be wrong. The interesting thing is it seems to be pressure from within. Pressure from within. Um, after 10 years of ministry, this church was beginning to see this internal conflict and pressure boiling up. And uh, it was at this time, 10 years later, where um, we get this letter. Where Paul, hearing of all of this internal stuff, um, sits down and pours his heart onto the page. 10 years after the church was, was planted, pours his heart out to this young leader named Timothy about the struggles that he is singing, uh, that he is seeing. So with that, Paul writes this. He says, um, as I urged you when I, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. In other words, I've already urged you. We've already talked about this. Um, we've, we, he urged him to remain there in Ephesus, remain with this people, remain with this church. And why? Why does Paul have Timothy stay? Well, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. So here Timothy was being charged. This is kind of a stern command here. It's kind of like a Paul giving Timothy military orders. Like, here's your orders. You're staying. And um, he was staying to address the problem. Again, not the problem from out there. The problem from within, inside, internal. And so Paul was being charged to remain with these people to address this problem. And, and this is a particularly dangerous and deadly problem. And I want to um, point in on something here. Church, some things never change. I have to tell you that pressure and struggles from out there, that's hard. It's hard. Um, those moments when the church has to either stand on the word of God, come what may, or compromise. Those moments are hard. Those moments are challenging. And let me just say that the enemy would love nothing more than to see many, 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 many more churches who look just like the culture around them. Okay? Pressure out there, it's real. I don't want to downplay that kind of pressure at all. Um, but church, I want you to know that the pressure from within can be just as deadly, I would argue even more deadly, and heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Pressure and problems out there, that's one thing. I kind of expect to have that. Um, but if the enemy can get the church to just kind of crumble from within, bleh, it's way worse. It's just gross. It's an entirely different thing, and it's absolutely deadly. And Paul here is writing this letter to this church who is experiencing this for the sake of unity in this church. Not just unity, but unity in the gospel and in our lives together in the gospel, unity. And it gets to the heart of a deadly problem. And uh, this is not a new problem, although what I'm about to put on the screen is a completely made-up word. It's what I call this problem, Okay. So not a new problem, but new label, maybe. Um, and I'm going to put it up here, and I'm not even going to define it. We're going to talk about it here in a little bit. But gospel fatigue. Gospel fatigue. We're going to define this. We're going to unpack this a little bit more. 
seeing how this plays out. But for now, let's jump back in. As I urge you, um, Timothy, to charge certain persons. These persons, certain persons remain nameless here. Love that. Uh, Heads up, though. They're not going to always remain nameless. We're at least going to get two of their names coming up very shortly. Um, He's going to call them out by name. But here, these certain persons, and he charged them not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, what on earth are these things? These different doctrines and myths and endless genealogies? What is he talking about? Well, our text specifically in these two verses, don't tell us. However, um, if you were to pan out and zoom out a little bit, um, you're going to see that in other texts, in First and Second Timothy and Titus specifically, we're going to see these phrases repeated over and over again, and we're going to get to know a little bit of what Paul is calling out here. And so if you look at this, um, let's start in our verse. In our... In our um, Scripture in First Timothy. Later in First Timothy, we're going to see in First Timothy four, have nothing to do with irrelevant and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Let's move to Second Timothy. Second Timothy four. For the time is coming when people they're not going to endure sound teaching. They have itchy ears. Uh, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Out like this one hurts a lot. And will turn away from listening to the truth and what? Wander off into myths. Later on in uh, Titus, Paul, again, is talking about these myths. And he ties them to Jewish heritage. Um, and he says, not devoting themselves to, here Paul says, Jewish myths. And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Again, Titus 3, 9 says, but avoid foolish controversies. Listen to these same words, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. How about that? Um, So although we don't know the exact nature of these teachings, we know enough to know what Paul is rebuking. Um, And what we know right off the bat is these are non-gospel issues. Okay, non-gospel. And I want to say this. I know gospel is kind of a catchphrase, gospel this, gospel that. Let me define my term here. When I say gospel, I don't want to just throw it out loosey-goosey. I'm talking here about the good news of Jesus Christ when I say gospel. In fact, I want to let Paul define it for us. When I say gospel, I'm talking about the good news of Jesus the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. This might be a familiar text to you. Um, says, would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I have preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain, then listen to what Paul says. This is the gospel. Ready? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he gives the laundry list here. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And then last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay, here's the gospel. The gospel 
is the center and the core of our faith, and the gospel is all about the work and the person of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures, to use Paul's language here. So this is what I mean when I say gospel. But here in Ephesus, here in this letter, we begin to see these issues popping up, and they're different doctrines, and they're myths, and they're genealogies, and they're, they're popping up, and none of these are, are regarding that central truth, that first importance, the gospel. None of these genealogies, dissensions are gospel-related. They're not gospel issues at all, and often they are even contrary to the gospel. They're non-gospel issues, extra-biblical issues popping up in the church. They're not the gospel, and yet they had grown to kind of start to replace it in this church. Non-gospel. And, and the reason I bring this up is because I want to highlight one of the predominant plans of the enemy. Are you ready? He does not change. We're coming back to these, but I'll just put them up. Three predominant plans of the enemy that are revealed right here in our text. First, these things that were coming up, they were distracting. Okay? That means these teachers, they were teaching, and these issues were distracting the people of God from the central and important issues of the gospel. They were distracting. They were distracting the, the church from its mission. They were distracting the church from its central message, and they were distracting the church from what it's called to be and do. Not only that, though, not only were they distracted, but they were divisive. Okay, this is big. Uh, as these doctrines spread, they were causing these divisions in the church where in the church there was, I'm in this camp. Well, I follow him. But did you hear that issue? What about that myth? And it started to kind of break up and divide the church. And these doctrines were causing these divisions and these divisions that were based on non-gospel things. So you have Distraction, division, and then lastly, let's just get cut to what the enemy's ultimate plan is, destructive. They were destructive. They, um, they are worthless to the cause of Jesus in the church, and these ideas and individuals behind these ideas were being destructive to the life and mission, health, and unity of the church. And Paul is calling Timothy to stay and to charge these people to not do that, to not teach things that are that, to, to not teach different doctrine or devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies like that, okay? And, and this is really important. I, I'm, I think it's important that I pause here and just kind of bring this to our situation here. So here at Stone Oak, we say this term a lot, that we're gospel-centered. And um, what does that mean? Some of you might hear me say, we are a gospel-centered church, and you think, well, duh, you're a church, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to say that, pastor, you're supposed to say that. Some of you might hear me say, we're gospel-centered, and it sounds nothing more than religious catchphrases to you, like, means nothing, right? Um, but I want you to hear me, when we say that we are gospel-centered, what we are saying is we are seeking to live out what Paul is instructing Timothy to live out in this letter. And let me just unpack this. We are calling out, when we say we are gospel-centered, we are calling out one of the main temptations of our heart, the predominant dangers of the church today. I'm gonna to go back to my made-up word, gospel fatigue. This time I'll give you a definition. Gospel fatigue, 
don't look this up because, again, I made this up, is, is the temptation that we would seek to, quote, unquote, move on. Like, we got it. Let's move on. In order to find some additional depth or knowledge or satisfaction in something else in addition to or other than the gospel. It's growing tired with the same old, let's graduate. It's gospel fatigue. It's a false goal that will lead to those three things, division, distraction, destruction. It leads us, let me get it on the ground for us, it leads us to believe that somehow you and I need to graduate from this simple gospel and move on to something deeper. Give me the meat. Give me the meat. Like The temptation to say, okay, pastor, we get it. I've heard this before. Let's move on to those deeper things. Those secret things. The gospel fatigue would lead us to believe that mature Christians are the ones who have graduated from the milk of the simple gospel. And now they have moved on to the deeper things, the deeper truths, the meat. I can't say this strongly enough. Wrong. Wrong. Um, I can't say enough how dangerous that mentality is. Um, from the earliest to the earliest to the earliest churches, our temptation has been to try to add things, to search for other things, apart, of, or apart from what God has revealed. Um, the enemy, in other words, has used the same exact game plan, just on repeat throughout history. And if you don't believe me, I want to take you back the earliest I can possibly take you back. You don't need to turn with me, but do you remember Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, what happens? You have this uh, uh, crafty little serpent who comes to Adam and Eve with this dangerous temptation, and he poses it in questions, and he, he says, did God actually say that? Right? In that, in that condescending tone of a voice. And uh, Eve, we see, says, well, yes, actually, he did say that. And then the serpent goes in for the kill. He says, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You aren't going to die if you eat that fruit. Do you remember what the serpent says? I'm going to put it up here. For God knows that when you eat of it, what's going to happen? Your eyes are going to be opened. And you're going to, you're going to be like God, and you're going to know things you don't know now. You're going to know good. You're going to know evil. You're going to know the way is going to be opened for you. In other words, no, 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 Eve. There's just secret knowledge over here. There's just deeper things over here. Don't you want that, Eve? Can I just say this again? There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve with the same temptation that the church of Ephesus faces. The temptation to not be satisfied with what God has said and what God has already revealed and the truth of God. To look for more, to look for that secret stuff, that secret sauce, to know those deeper things, to be like God, to know more eyes open. The temptation was for man and woman. Hear me, in the garden, the temptation was for the man and the woman to lose their satisfaction with what God had revealed to them. And to reach for more. To look for more, right? I gotta tell you, that's the enemy's plan from day one. That is the enemy's plan. 
Church, if the enemy can get us to lose our satisfaction with the gospel and look for other ways to identify ourselves within the church, he's won. He's succeeded. He can divide, distract, and weaken the church. And to put this another way, the last thing that the enemy wants is for us to be fully satisfied in the good news of Christ. That is the last thing that your enemy wants, is for you to find your complete and full satisfaction in the simple good news of Jesus. That's the worst case scenario. Because guess what? The gates of hell cannot prevail against that church. It's the worst case scenario for the enemy. And so there's nothing new under the sun. And we don't have to look hard to see this scheme playing out through history and even playing out today. In fact, if you think about it, uh, some of you I know have ministry uh, to, to dealing with cults. I know. Um, if you think about it, this temptation is really the way most, if not every, cult begins. Right? Um, starts with this idea that there's something else. There's a secret. There's more. We have it. From Mormonism to Jehovah's Witness, I mean, we can even go deep track and think about in Waco at uh, the Branch Davidians with David Koresh. Um, even to, you know, when it was really popular, The Secret, remember that? That just called it what it was, right? Where Oprah was, was talking about the secret in the universe, the New Age movement, even to Wicca. I, you could throw all of these in here. And what do they all share in common? Like all of these things that fill Netflix documentaries and many, many episodes of podcasts. And if you listen to them, you know what I'm talking about. Um, they all share in common this destructive temptation to reach for more. God has said this, but there's got to be more. You can even look closely to movements such as in the church, this ultra charismatic movement to the social gospel movement, to the word of faith movement, to the prosperity gospel movement. What is it? Well, it's, it's perversions of the truth that start in the church, find their origin in this temptation where we are no longer satisfied with the gospel. We've grown fatigued and we're looking for something else. That's what I mean when I say gospel fatigue. And so I want to say loudly and often, we are gospel-centered. Amen. What I, what I mean when I say this is we're not continually looking for other things. We're not looking for those new and novel things. It means that we're continually coming back to the thing. Why is it that we do communion every morning, every Sunday morning? We're coming back. Coming back. This is both true, by the way, on a church level and on a personal level. And I'll start with the church level because it'll step on less toes. And then I'll step on your toes after, okay? Um, listen, if I ever, and I want you to hold me to this, if I ever come up here and tell you I have found something new, no one else has ever seen this before. And I got to tell you, there's a new way to look at scripture that no one else has ever seen. And, and I have this knowledge. Finally, we have the secret. If I ever get up here and say that, listen, run. Do not turn back. Do not look back. Get out of here. Because this is how cults start. This is how churches divide and crumble. My job is not to come up with the new and the novel. 
It's not my job. My responsibility is a stewardship. It's to continually point back to the truth, as Jude says, to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That is my role and my stewardship as a pastor if I'm going to be faithful. That is it. So our hope at Stone Oak Bible Church is not to come up with something new that makes us distinct from all those other churches. Our goal is faithfulness. Faithfulness. This means that I want to celebrate the things. No, I don't want to celebrate the things that make us different and distinct from all of the other churches, all the things that we're doing that are new and fresh that no one's ever thought about before. That is a fool's errand. It's a losing game. Um, the things that excite me and the things that I want us to celebrate as the church are the things that we have in common with the faithful churches who have come before us and the faithful churches that we minister to shoulder to shoulder. Those are the things that we need to celebrate. Just take that in. This is, this, we need to celebrate the ways that we're the same. We need to celebrate the ways that we link arms and, and with those who have gone before and those who are serving around. And, and this is what we need to celebrate here because we're gospel people and the gospel's sufficient and we don't need new trendy things. The gospel is enough and we're never going to graduate from it. It is both milk and meat. And um, we will never... Um, we need to link arms and never allow these other issues to distract us or define us. And there are countless modern examples of different doctrines, as our text says, or myths or endless genealogies. And as a church, we just collectively say, no thank you. No thank you. All right, we're coming back to the church level in a bit. But as I said, I have some toes that I want to step on. Um, what does maturity in Christ look like, church? What does a mature follower of Jesus look like? Like, how do you define it? I have another definition you're not going to find, but I'm just going to put it up here because I think it, it's awesome. Um, maturity in Christ is, is measured by the level of satisfaction we have in our hearts for the simple, powerful, life-changing gospel of Jesus. Okay, sit with this. What this means is that the most mature brothers and sisters in the faith that I have ever seen are the men and women whose eyes light up just light up when they talk about Jesus. It's like the more mature they are, the less the other things matter and the deeper the gospel penetrates. That's what maturity is. Um, I want to give you an example of this. I debated if I was going to do this, but I think, I I, I think it works. Um, at seminary, I had the opportunity to take a course with uh, the legendary Dr. Howard Hendricks. Um, this man is a giant in the faith, scholar of scholars. He was, he was awesome. His building's named after him. He has a, uh, knows the Greek New Testament better than I know my English. He writes textbooks. He's brilliant. He's forgotten more than I will ever know. That's Dr. Hendricks. And, uh, he's a giant in the faith. And, and I had his class at the end of his career. In fact, Dr. Hendricks passed away my, um, at the very end of my time at seminary. He was this giant of the faith. He had this successful career in both academics and pastoral ministry, and yet, in the class I took with him, um, 
there is one thing that stood out to me more than any other thing. And it wasn't his crazy intellect. It wasn't his powerful teaching ability, his brilliant new take on that new idea that rocked us all. Uh, Now, he was intelligent, he was crazy brilliant, and he was a great teacher. But that wasn't what got me. That wasn't what stood out to me. What stood out to me the most about this man was I walked away thinking, that man loves Jesus. Um, He could just, and he would, just geek out and just start just gushing about what Jesus had done for him for hours. And he would talk about the simple truth of Jesus, like his birth, his life, death, resurrection, what he accomplished. He would just go on and on and on and on and on about it. And hearing it and hearing him talk about it, it was like he was just being overwhelmed by the gospel for the first time. And hearing him do this in front of all of us made me feel like, am I hearing this for the first time? His passion and his affection for Jesus showed me that no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, how long you have been following Jesus, you do not get over the gospel. Have you gotten over the gospel this morning? Every time I sat in his class, it made me ask that question. And I just, I got to believe, after sitting in his class, that um, the most mature person in Christ is the person most satisfied in the gospel of Christ. He showed me this. I wanted what he had. I wanted to teach with that kind of passion. I wanted to drink from that well. Because the more mature we are in Jesus, um, it's, it's not found in this next new thing or the new fad. Those things come and go. But true maturity and satisfaction in this life is found in returning to and contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's it. So here's what this means. All right, here's the toes. I told you I was going to step on them. Um, warning. If you are here and you are bored with the gospel, I say this with truth and love. The problem's not the gospel. The problem is your heart. If you're here and you are bored with the gospel, it's a heart problem. And, and there is grace in Christ, and, and, and it's, it's a call to us to come back to him and repent because it's through repentance and that brokenness that our hearts get overwhelmed by the gospel all over again. So it's a call to come back. But if you find that you're bored in the gospel this morning, the problem is your heart, and I want to challenge you, call you, plead with you to run back and return to the simple things of the gospel. Amen. Right. The simple things. In in other words, if you're bored, it's not time to look for the next new thing. It's not time to look for something else that you can move on to that's a little deep. It means it's time to come back and to come back to the basics and to come back to the simple gospel. This, uh, if you're longing for the next thing, in other words, it's because you have forgotten the thing and it's time to come back. It's time to run back. At the beginning, I said that this verse has the most powerful statement, central statement, I think, of the whole letter. And so after I've talked for a long time, we're finally going to get to it, okay? Um, here it is. Um, in 1 Timothy 3, toward the end, it says, charge certain per- persons not to teach different doctrines, uh, myths, genealogies, and then listen to this. 
which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith, which promote speculations. Speculation means that we don't know something, so we speculate it, right? That's what a speculation is. We don't know it, so we speculate it. And hear me, the gospel is not about speculation. What's it about? It's about stewardship. Speculation and stewardship are very, very different. The gospel is stewardship, not speculation. What does that mean for us? Well, it means to us that the gospel is a truth that has been revealed to us. It's revealed truth, which makes us not in the role of speculation, but puts us in the seat of a steward. Um, Second Peter says it's his divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. What does that mean? It means that he's given you the truth of the gospel. You have all that you need for life and godliness in Christ. And if he hadn't revealed it, you wouldn't have it, by the way, but he has revealed it to us. And so it's ours not to speculate. Ours is not to speculate and to come up with our own stories and our own truth He's revealed it to us. So I have two questions for us. One I've already asked you, but I'll put it up here anyway. Um, will you be fully satisfied in what he has revealed? The gospel. Will we find our full and complete satisfaction in the gospel this morning together? Not looking for more, but coming back to what he has given us. That's the first question. But the second one comes in this later part. And we got to add, will you be a faithful steward of what he has revealed? Will you be a faithful steward? What's a steward? Well, a steward's not an owner. A steward's not the master. A steward means that the message is not yours to change or modify or to ignore it. In fact, a steward is going to give an account to his master. We are going to give an account to our master for the stewardship we have been given of the gospel. We're given a stewardship. The gospel is a stewardship. And when the master returns... We're going to give an account. Will we be faithful stewards of the gospel? That means, are we going to protect it? Are we going to share it? Are we going to stand on it? Are we going to come back to it again and again and again and again and again and again and uh, again and then again until the day you die? Just coming back to it. Speculation leaves the ball in our court and stewardship says, "Uh uh-uh. Stewardship recognizes that the gospel is given to us by our God, revealed by our God, and it's ours to believe and share. This morning, I I want us to kind of end by coming back to the basics. Um, As the people of God at Stono Bible Church, um, we've been given the gospel and trusted with the gospel, and it's great news, and it's the greatest news. We have been entrusted with the single greatest news of all time, that Christ crucified for sinners, of grace and freedom and satisfaction and joy in Christ. We've been entrusted with this. We've been given this as a steward. And here's the thing. Just like in the Garden of Eden, um, and just like in the church in Ephesus, the enemy is going to come with the same old game plan. It's going to whisper in our ears, well, what about that? What about this issue? And what about that take? And what about those issues over there and issues over here? And what he's going to do is 
those three things I put on the, the screen, he's going to seek to divide, distract, and destroy. That's his game plan. The enemy and our flesh are going to pull at us that we would give ourselves to the newest trends of our culture and the newest fads of that other church over there, and ultimately that we would lose our simple joy and satisfaction in the gospel as we chase after lesser things. We cannot let this happen. Um, we, we hold this in our hand, and we are stewards of this. Stewards of this. To be a people who are satisfied with the simple gospel, centered on the gospel. Gospel fatigue is one of the oldest tricks of the enemy's playbook. When we start to believe the lie that the gospel's not enough, we need to look deeper so we don't get bored, we need to get to the real meat so we can mature, that is a lie. Gospel fatigue is a lie. Because the gospel is enough. The gospel is sufficient. In other words, you and I, we together as the church, are called to be a one-trick pony. We got one trick. One. And here's the thing. We got one thing. Here's the thing about our one thing. Our one thing is everything. It's like that old saying that Jesus plus nothing is everything. We're going to unpack this. I could keep going. We're going to stop. We're going to unpack this more in the following weeks. Um, but for today, I think this is enough for us to chew on, for us to sit with. And um, I want to give us a moment that we can respond. Remember, posture is everything open-handed that we respond and, and ask, God, would you read us? Would your word read us? And so I want us to respond together in prayer. So where you're at, would you join me as we pray? God, we, um, we come back this morning to the simple gospel. The simple good news that while we were dead in our sins, Christ came, that you demonstrated your great love for us. And we know that the wages of sin is death, and we also know that we have all sinned and fallen short. But we stand on the fact that the grace that you offered in the work and person of Jesus. As we remembered this morning, we're not wondering if, 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 uh, if it was enough or if I've been good enough today. Or No, that is done. We're a simple gospel people, and that means that we remember that his work is sufficient. It is enough. So I want to pray for my brothers and sisters today. I first want to pray for those who feel the weight of this, and, and maybe we have wandered from the gospel. Maybe we have gotten so wrapped up in other things and um, that we have forgotten the simple joy of knowing Jesus and knowing the love of God through Jesus and being in Jesus. I pray that we would know that and it would just wreck our hearts. I pray that we would run back. And God, I also pray for, for those here who maybe have been searching after all of the wrong things maybe you've been running after the newest trends and the newest ways of thinking about things and I just pray that we're able to put that down and come open handed to your word and understand what your word says about who we are that we are sinners and 
who you are, that you are perfect, and who Jesus is, that he came so that we as sinners can know and be in communion with a perfect God. We know and we stand on the fact that Jesus gave us through his life, his perfect life, taking the death that we deserved, giving us his faithfulness and his righteousness. And we can know him forever. So Lord, we come back to the simple gospel proclaimed. Help us to be a church that never graduates from it. Help us to be a people who never move on from it. Help us to be a people who are known because of how much we geek out, eyes open, filled with passion as we just talk about the simple gospel. Help us to be that people. Help us to be mature in our faith as our satisfaction grows in the simple gospel. Help us to be that people. In Jesus' name.